0: Here I have this guarantee of a future, but I'm loving what I'm doing. I'm learning so much and I'm growing in ways that are very exciting for me. And so I made the decision not to go to medical school and committed myself to graduate work in the lab that's where I ultimately did my PhD. And I don't regret it at all. That's an example of how important it is to follow your heart. Uh, Because ultimately, I realized, not in that moment, but over time, that I didn't really want to be a physician. I didn't really want to go to medical school. It wasn't the right direction for me.
1: Welcome back to NGB Ideas. You know, the Canadian life sciences community has an incredible and growing list of leaders, innovators, and disruptors but they're often known only through their LinkedIn page or a company website. This podcast is about their personal journey, who they are, how they got there, and where they're going. I'm Jim Wilson, and our guest today is Ryan Wiley, president of Shift Health in Toronto. Ryan grew up in Oshawa, Ontario, and his original plan was to attend medical school, but like many of our guests, he pivoted in university and now runs one of Canada's premier life sciences consulting firms. His personal journey is one to which many people in Canada will relate, and I'm very thankful Ryan has kindly shared it with us today. I hope you enjoy our conversation. The NGB Ideas podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit. This is an in-person speakers event that is taking place in Hamilton on the first Monday in October. We're thankful for the support of the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation and the TMX Group, and we appreciate the sponsorship provided by Omnia Bio, Admari BioInnovations, Nova Nordisk, and Bay Area Health Trust. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com or listen for my contact information at the end of our show. This episode was recorded in 2023. Ryan Wiley, Welcome to the NGB Ideas podcast. I know you are very busy and appreciate you making the time to join us.
0: Thanks, Tim. Very happy to be here.
1: Ever since we met, I've been looking forward to this conversation. So if you're ready, let's give her. You were born in Oshawa, Ontario, which is about 60 kilometers east of Toronto. Oshawa, I think has about 200,000 people and it's home to the Oshawa generals of the OHL and the General Motors Canada head office. It's also home to the GM Oshawa Assembly Plant, which opened in 1953 and has grown into a 5 million plus square foot facility that employs over 3,000 people. And to a degree, I think it is one of the things that defines the blue collar reputation, if I may, that Oshawa proudly wears. And I would appreciate you telling us what it was like growing up there.
0: So I have a lot of fondness for Oshawa. I spent the first 19 years of my life going to school and being raised by my wonderful parents and my grandmother, who lived there. Oshawa has a a blue-collar reputation. When I lived there, certainly General Motors was the primary employer. Everyone knew someone who worked for General Motors, but of course it was also very much a cyclical business. During my life in Oshawa, the influence of General Motors economically waned. And there was sort of a, a process of deinvestment and a need for Oshawa to begin to think differently about itself as a community and to diversify its economic opportunities. And so that was sort of what I experienced during my 19 years in Oshawa was that psychological and also physical transition from a single industry town and into a community that began to see itself differently and see opportunities outside of General Motors. The history of General Motors and car assembly in Oshawa goes back to the early 1900s. And that was something that everyone in Oshawa knew because it was part of the folklore of the community as well. We were very proud of this place in Oshawa called Parkwood, which was an early 20th century mansion that was built by colonel sam mclaughlin who was the first president and ceo of general motors canada and so this was a magnificent and still is a magnificent space in the center of town and it was particularly important in my life because it was my first job i was a tour guide in parkwood and so if you want me to virtually walk through the 50 rooms of that mansion And to tell all the stories, I'm happy doing so. I think the city of Oshawa should be sending you a referral for (laughs) this.
1: Where in the city did you grow up? Were you in the literal shadow of the assembly plant?
0: No. In fact, I was one of the few families that did not have a direct connection to General Motors. My father was a teacher and he was a municipal politician representing one of the wards. My mother had a a small business, women's fashion. We lived in the north part of the city, so actually as far away from General Motors as you can pretty much get.
1: I'm going to follow your lead there, and I'd like to talk further about your family. You just mentioned your grandmother. Who was she? What was she like?
0: My grandmother is a remarkable woman, Ukrainian by uh, ancestry, although she was born in Canada. I'm married to your Ukrainian. Oh, are you? I'm married to a Dutchman. So she grew up in an agricultural family. Very, very strong-willed, but also extraordinarily loving woman. She was the second oldest of seven or eight kids. And sort of growing up in the 1920s and into the Depression, she had to take on a lot of responsibility for child care at a very, very early age, and so she did not have the opportunity to go to school. I don't think she went past grade four. That did not diminish her ambition and her self-efficacy and pride and her sense of claiming her place in the world. She was such an important guiding light for me growing up. I had so much respect for her and I have to say I was her favorite grandchild. (laughs) We had a very, very, very close and very special relationship. I have an Irish background and Ukrainian background, but I've always really seen myself more as a Ukrainian. I think it's because of her influence. Pierogies and cabbage rolls and Ukrainian (laughs) dancing were all part of my life growing up, which, of course, has destroyed my knees at a very young age. That's a little bit about her.
1: She sounds like an amazing woman. I would like to talk about your parents. You mentioned them briefly earlier. Let's start with your mother.
0: My mother, who is now in her 80s and as active and spry as as ever, she was a small business owner. She started her first business in the 1960s. She went to Europe and Spiria, this marvelous thing called discotech. It wasn't the discotheque that we have in our mind in terms of Club 54. It was a place where people came together, shared music, but shared stories and poetry. And it was really a, this beautiful bohemian thing. When she caught back, I'm going to open the first discotheque in Oshawa. That became her goal. And her mother was unemployed. And so she said, Mom, let's do this together. Let's invest in this business and create this discotheque called The Green Door. And she did that, and it was extremely successful. There was nothing else like it in the area. She got a taste for business and the opportunity to really create something and be her own boss. And so that led to other businesses, and ultimately she transitioned out of the discotheque, and then she went into fashion. Starting off by actually designing and making her own fashion for sale. And then as the business grew, went to fashion houses and and sold retail. She had that business for decades. It was great learning for me to see my mother, a woman at a particular period in history when opportunities for female entrepreneurs were more limited, but she pushed through. Like her mother claimed her place and her space in the world and would not take no for an answer despite a lot of discrimination. In fact, she was the first female member of the Oshawa Chamber of Commerce. Good for her. She was a very important influence in my life.
1: Absolutely, it sounds like another very accomplished person. Your father, what was his name and could you tell us about him?
0: My father is Jack. He was a high school teacher in Oshawa. He's taught at the same high school for his entire career which started in the early 1960s, and he retired in the early 90s, taught history and French and geography, but mainly history. He taught in the school that I went to, which created some awkwardness at times. He also was a municipal politician for 25 years, starting in the 1970s. And so political campaigns were very much part of my life growing up. I would go out with my father, knocking on doors, putting up signs on people's lawns, designing his campaign brochure, and attending victory parties, attending council meetings, going to his office in City Hall, and and sort of seeing the process of politics and decision making and and community engagement really happening in, in my life, and it was quite exciting and inspiring.
1: You also have a younger brother, I understand. What's the age difference? Two years. Were you allies or adversaries growing
0: up? We're close enough in age to play together and to have some similar interests, and we're also close enough in age to resent each other <laughs> and to feel threatened by each other. I think it was a very typical sibling relationship of love and rivalry.
1: Sounds like my relationship with my brothers. We touched on the political side of things, and certainly sounds like you grew up in a very busy household. A friend of mine mentioned some time ago that if... You're in politics, the job owns you. Given your family's experience, is that something that you would agree with?
0: I would say not quite. I would say that my parents were certainly very, very engaged in their community. In fact, that was one of the values that they instilled in me, that when you have certain privileges and advantages and opportunities, that it's an obligation for you to use those to the benefit of the broader community to put yourself out there and to help create a better society, a better community in which to live. And so that was very, very important in my family. So my mother was also very engaged in politics and other community groups. And so it was a very busy household. My parents were very often in evenings out in meetings and were hosting gatherings of people but they were extremely committed that their primary and first focus was taking care of my brother and me and and giving us the opportunities that we enjoyed. We would almost always have dinner together, even if it was between meetings and my father was rushing home, having dinner, then rushing off it was a time for us to discuss, not simply what happened in our day, but to discuss issues. They Very often, our conversations became very political and a little bit tense at times, but it was a really good opportunity for us to connect as a family and learn from each that other.
1: sounds like a really great childhood. I cannot complain.
0: I'm very privileged. Most of that privilege is unearthed because, you know, I happen to be born into a particular family at a particular time in a particular country with a particular gender assignment at birth. All of those things were out of my control. But hopefully, I'm in a position where I'm able to take those advantages and put them to Absolutely. good Absolutely.
1: I'd like to move on to high school. Uh, what school did you attend?
0: I attended O'Neill Collegiate and Vocational Institute. That is
1: a mouthful. And you mentioned earlier your father was teaching at the school. I had a father who was an English teacher and a vice principal in my hometown of North Bay, and I had the fortune of not being a student at his school. And it sounds like you didn't dodge that bullet. What was that like?
0: It was interesting because my father had been at the school forever, so he was a fixture in the school and had quite a a strong reputation as a good teacher, but as a bit of a disciplinarian, as a hard marker. Reflection of the times as well. I just had to avoid those conversations, and certainly I was never in his class, but many of my friends were taught by him. Just a little bit awkward and uncomfortable, but it also conferred further advantages to me. His colleagues who taught me, I think, felt a special affection for me. It was good and bad.
1: There were advantages and disadvantages with the position you found yourself in. We'd like to remind our listeners the NGB Ideas podcast is part of Next Great Big Ideas, which is a fundraising event in support of McMaster Children's Hospital. If you're a startup, an investor, an academic, or just interested in Canada's life sciences sector, you should be attending the Next Great Big Ideas Summit in Hamilton on the first Monday in October. For details and to purchase tickets, please go to nextgreatbigideas.com. What were your favorite subjects?
0: Oh, I loved everything. I was a very studious student, very committed to getting the highest grade in everything. It was a bit of an obsession, probably unhealthy. Really enjoyed the experience of learning and just pushing myself as hard as I could to get the most out of that experience. From an academic perspective, I really enjoyed high school. Did
1: school come naturally, or is it something that you really had to work at?
0: It came pretty naturally. I suppose I was gifted with a particular mind, so it was something that I could succeed at.
1: Did you play any sports or belong to any clubs, or did you follow your parents' lead and go on to student council?
0: I am not athletic at all. So I did not play any team sports. I did, throughout high school, I curled. It's a great sport. It is. I wasn't very good at it, but I did it. But I was involved in many clubs. There was always a lunch hour meeting or an after school meeting or before school meeting that I was engaged in. Did you run for council? No, I don't think I did, but I was involved in other clubs. We had a teacher who taught Latin and ancient Greek, both of which I took. We would compete in an annual conference across Ontario in a variety of classics-related competitions. I did science fairs on my own time. I played the piano as well. And Me too. It's so sad, though, because if you put me at a piano now... <laughs> It's horrible. Guilty. (laughs) It's it's embarrassing. I'm appalled by myself.
1: I sound like a bad Bugs Bunny cartoon when I hit the keyboard now. I understand a high school guidance counselor made you aware of a new program at McMaster University in in Hamilton that combines social and physical sciences. I'd appreciate knowing what you recall about that conversation and what the program was about.
0: You asked me the question a moment ago, which subjects did you like best? I'm unable to answer that question because I liked everything. And so that was a struggle because I didn't know what I should be going into. The natural path for me, given that I was very good in science and math, was to go in that direction. There was a perception that that would open up more career possibilities. I was very interested in history and philosophy and literature. I was at a loss. This guidance counselor was aware of a program called the Arts and Science program at McMaster University. And it was a limited enrollment program, and they only took about 40 or 50 students a year. It was truly an opportunity to get very deep into science, to take all the core sciences, but also to have the opportunity to take courses in writing and literature, human history, philosophy, social sciences. It was really a fabulous experience. My undergrad was awakening, largely because the arts and science program created so many marvelous academic opportunities for me.
1: It sounds like not only did you have this revelation that, yeah, this is where I should be, but you were also in a position where you could successfully argue why you should be there. <laughs> <Yes. Yeah. laughs> so you started at McMaster in 1994? Did you live on campus or off campus?
0: I lived on campus for the first year, and that's a good experience, but I knew that the year was enough in that environment, and then moved into off-campus housing.
1: And I read that one professor in particular had a significant influence on you, Sylvia
0: Bauerbank. Could you tell us about her? Sylvia Bauerbank, who is now unfortunately deceased, she taught first-year course in writing. I think it was one of the most important courses I've ever taken because she instilled in me an appreciation for language and the art of writing and a respect for simplicity and precision in communication, but also of the beauty of words and the joy that comes from experimenting with them that I've carried throughout my life. I would say that I'm a pretty good writer, and I owe a lot to Sylvia Barbeck to be able to say that today.
1: As I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, wow, did you ever end up going down a path that you should have gone down? I read that at university you were involved politically, for lack of a better term. How did you get involved and why?
0: The why isn't just part of my DNA. That was just instilled in me. I was fascinated by the opportunity to influence decision-making, to represent the student body on Senate, and to bring that voice, but also to learn about how groups of individuals with very different backgrounds and very different views, come together to align on decisions. And the politics of that, the psychology of that, the humanity of that, it was really fascinating for me. It sort of infected me with this passion for doing more of it. I sat on a number of selection committees for senior leaders within the organization as a student representative. And so it gave me an appreciation for governance, for decision-making, for collaboration, and for university politics. (laughs)
1: So you're 19, 20 years old. You're sitting in a boardroom, shoulder to shoulder, with members of the university senate. That must have been intimidating.
0: Yes, I was very intimidated.
1: You were obviously mature beyond your years. It seems to be a theme that I'm hearing in your your life. Can you recall any experiences or lessons you learned that have stayed with you?
0: One is I probably spoke more in those (laughs) settings than I should have. You know, I had opinion, I don't think I was arrogant, but I felt I am a place at this table and you've invited me. So I'm going to talk. I learned the importance of self-regulation and to a certain extent sort of self-censorship in certain settings. So that was one point, not every opinion that you have is valuable. The second thing that I learned is just the process of collaborative decision making. I was not facilitating these discussions, but I would learn from the chair of a particular committee how you navigate disagreement, how you bring people to align on positions, how you negotiate between positions, especially with selection committees for senior leadership. You have to come out of those decision-making processes with a unanimous decision. Sometimes it was hard to get to that point. It was a really really fascinating learning experience and something that I've certainly tried to carry into my career as, as a consultant.
1: Listening to you describe that experience, I think of one of my father's favorite sayings, which was, stand up, speak up, shut up. (laughs) Yeah. Given your interests, were you thinking maybe about pursuing medical school?
0: That was always the expected destination. It was just an assumption that given my interest in science and biology specifically, that I had an opportunity to go to medical school So that was my expectation. In my final year of undergrad, I, of course, applied to medical school because that was what I expected me to do. But I also started a fourth-year thesis in a lab that was exploring the biological basis of asthma and allergy. I loved that lab. I loved my supervisor, Manel Jordana, the postdoc who was overseeing my work. Martin Shamsley. This is the first time I was really experiencing how science happened. And it was just fascinating. And so when May came, that's when the medical school admissions letters are sent out. And I received admission letters from more than one medical school. I was really faced with a very difficult decision. Because here I have this guarantee of a future. But i loving what I'm doing. I'm learning so much and I'm growing in ways that are very exciting for me. And so I made the decision not to go to medical school and committed myself to graduate work in the lab that's where I ultimately did my PhD. And I don't regret it at all. That's an example of how important it is to follow your heart. Uh, because ultimately I realized, not in that moment, but over time, that I didn't really want to be a physician. I didn't really want to go to medical school. It wasn't the right direction for me. So you
1: went into a master's degree. That morphed into a PhD in immunology, correct? Yes. What was your time at McMaster like as a graduate student?
0: It was life-changing on many levels. So First, from a scholarly perspective, it instilled in me an appreciation for the process of the scientific method, data and knowledge in the critical appraisal of information. To a certain extent, even more importantly, the social experience was life-altering, because this is a time when I was just coming out. I found myself in an environment in my lab with a mentor and a supervisor who was so compassionate and so aware that his student ryan was not his full self it created that safe space for me to begin to explore questions of identity that i had very intentionally and actively suppressed for my entire life to that point that was my coming out experience was through My graduate work, as I was becoming a scientist, I was also becoming myself as a gay man. It was probably the most seminal and important experience of my life. I'm named after
1: an uncle on my father's side of the family who was gay, and I have a nephew who was gay, and I am thankful and proud to call them family. And uh, I've not obviously walked in their shoes, nor have I walked in yours, And I can't not imagine the personal and professional obstacles you faced and had to overcome. And at some point, you did build up the courage to step forward and come out. And doing that personally is one thing. Doing it professionally is another. Do you recall if there was a specific moment or was it a series of events that got you to that point?
0: A couple of things I'll just say to preface. The person before you is a white, gay, cisgendered male which is today about as generic and vanilla as you can be. It's amazing what has happened in the past 20 years. That's actually what gives me hope for change for other equity-deserving groups and why I'm so committed to that work, because I know that change is possible. But when I was growing up, for the first half of my life, that was not the case. Gay people were persecuted, faced discrimination. The coming out experience was a radical act of social deviance. Growing up, you know, even when you're a young kid, you're different from the other boys. You have different interests. You have different ways of looking at the world, different experiences. And I was terrified of all of that. I absolutely intentionally suppressed all of it. I wanted nothing more than for it to all go away and for me to be, quote unquote, normal. That's one of the reasons, I think, why I committed myself so much to my scholarly work because I could push everything else aside. I'll just focus here and be very successful in school and prove to others that I belong because I'm doing so well in this aspect of my life. And I'm not going to let that other part of me, that darkness, get in the way. Getting into my graduate program in the late 1990s, this is a time we were beginning to see social change. The AIDS crisis had certainly awakened society to an oppressed minority. People in my circle, in my friends, were beginning to ask themselves if they might be gay. We were beginning to have those conversations. And so it wasn't a moment of decision. It was very much process of Gradually peeling away the layers of self-protection and obscurity that gradually allowed myself and several of my friends to begin to emerge as the people we always knew we were. I could not have done that without their support and their friendship and their openness and willingness to create that sense of safety and security so that I could have the courage to even ask myself the question. It took years to really feel comfortable saying, I'm gay.
1: Ryan, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this conversation who will join me in thanking you for sharing that. That's very personal, and I think it's very helpful, and I do really appreciate you sharing your thoughts. Before we move on, I have one other question, if I may. Are there any words of advice you would offer to any of those listeners who may be in a similar situation at this moment?
0: I would say that you're not alone and remember that you're not alone. And my discovery during my graduate degree that others were facing similar questions and and anxiety and and fear made me realize that I'm actually part of a community and that we can help each other get through this and also recognize that we're not the problem. (laughs) That was so empowering and liberating for me. I just think it's so important for people to remember that they are not alone. There are others who are going through a similar process, and you need to find those communities of support and love to get through it together.
1: I absolutely agree. Life is a team sport. It is. Let's talk about your PhD, if I may. I read that you came to what I guess would be another fork in the road, but one that just about every grad student gets to, which is, okay, I go this way. I'm an academic, I go that way, I'm heading to the private sector. Do you recall standing at that fork and thinking, okay, now what?
0: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I was thinking about this earlier. There wasn't really a moment of decision. It again was a process of self-awareness. So I loved my PhD. The science we were doing was very, very exciting. I had the opportunity to go to Sweden and do some work in a private sector lab there with what was then called Astra, which is now AstraZeneca. I did some work in Boston at another biotech company called Millennium. I had a really wonderful learning experience and just loved the science. But over time, I came to understand that toiling away in a laboratory, as exciting as the science was, was a bit lonely. I felt a little bit isolated from the world, and given my interest in community engagement and development, I continued to be very actively involved in university governance and activities. I realized that my skills and interests are best developed and, and exploited outside the academic setting. I never actually seriously considered a postdoc. I had no idea what career I was destined for, but I also wasn't terribly concerned about it. I don't need to make a decision right now. I have time, I'm hardworking, I'm smart, and I'll be fine. I did have an awareness though of management consulting. A good friend of mine at the time, he was at Harvard. Yes, he did an MBA at Harvard and then was recruited by McKinsey. And he told me about his job and I thought, that's fascinating. You get to go into all of these diverse organizations help leaders solve problems and then move on to the next project you're having an impact at a very rapid rate it seems very academic to me very science driven that's so just of really interesting. I can't believe that people pay people to do that. I had that on my mind that consulting was something that I'd probably enjoy because it was cerebral, it's very evidence based, very data driven, but also puts professionals into new situations all the time. And I found that to be really, really exciting.
1: Hi, Jim here. We hope you're enjoying today's show and want to remind our listeners this podcast is in support of McMaster Children's Hospital. If you're not aware, MacKids provides critical pediatric care to families in need in Niagara, Haldeman, Norfolk, Brant, Waterloo, Wellington, and Gray Counties. For more information, please go to hamiltonhealth.ca slash MacKids, that's M-A-C-K-I-D-S. Let's get back to the show. So it's 2004, you're fresh out of your PhD program and you were offered a full-time position as an intern, relatively new company called Shift Health. I guess it was five years old at that time.
0: It was called SHI Consulting at the start. We did rebrand.
1: So what's the backstory? Did they contact you? Did you see a Help Wanted ad?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's interesting because out of my PhD, I actually started an MBA at the Schulich School of Business. I thought my friend who had gone into consulting had done an MBA. I thought, well, maybe that's something that I should do. You know, I'm good at school, so let's just do more school. My first semester at Schulich, it was a great experience. I learned the fundamentals of business, how to read a balance sheet. After my first semester, I thought, you know what? I did a lot of school, (laughs) but I am reading not. Had a job outside of sort of an academic context. And so I thought, I'm going to do a, an internship for the summer. And I saw a job posting for an intern at SHI Consulting. I remember the interview with the principal at the time. It happened at about 11 p.m., because that's when it was convenient for him. Sorry, 11 p.m. P.m. Yes. Was he calling
1: it in from Yugoslavia? What? <laughs>
0: He was just busy. And I thought, okay, so this is the world that I'm entering now. I was thrown into projects right away. I had no experience of value. And I was anxious the entire time that I was going to do something wrong or provide advice or data that was not fully vetted. But it was great. It was fast-paced, old, and I thought, this is the kind of job that I see myself doing. About halfway through the summer internship, they offered me a full-time position. So here's now another moment of decision. Do I take this opportunity and learn on the job, or do I continue with the second half of my MBA? It was a moment of reckoning for me because I had always defined myself as someone who was academically successful. And so here I'm making a decision to actually Abort an academic program because I, there's no way I could do both and move into this completely unknown domain where I didn't know if I would ultimately thrive. But I thought this is the experience I need, so I took that plunge and rest is history.
1: I'm just gonna guess it. It's worked out okay. What is Shift Health? Why does this company exist? What does it do?
0: Shift Health is a strategy and advisory firm that works exclusively within the life sciences or the health research and innovation ecosystem. If I can capture our mission as an organization, it's to help our clients maximize the human health system and economic impact and potential of research and innovation. So, we do work across the ecosystem within life sciences. So, we're working with academic institutions that are looking to commercialize their innovations partner with industry or advance interdisciplinary research initiatives. We work a lot with the life sciences industry, with pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, diagnostic companies, increasingly digital health companies to build out their strategies to ensure that their innovations maximize the reach of, of the population and they maximize the adoption of those innovations. So helping them with product strategy and access strategy. We work with health charities and patient groups, both as the uh, beneficiaries of innovation, but also critically as key participants in the research process and as funders of the research process. We work with government agencies, helping them to think about the policy environment and investment environment that they need to create in order to foster robust life sciences ecosystems. We really bring a very integrated perspective on what's going to make our ecosystem successful. We work in Canada, but most of our work is actually outside Canada now, in the US, in Europe, in the Middle East as well. You've got a
1: very impressive client list. How do you get in those doors? Like, is it word of mouth? Is it excellent cold callers?
0: (laughs) (laughs) We've certainly benefited from word of mouth. I'm proud to say that clients are very satisfied with our work, and that reputation begins to permeate throughout the ecosystem. At the end of the day, it's a small world, and people talk to each other. you have to get out there and through various channels, whether it's asking for an introduction or getting out there and making people aware of what you can do, and often starting very small. Let's do something very small together so that we can understand the relationship and the value that we can create together, and that can often lead to bigger things. A big part of of our business development is in the creation of thought leadership. So perspectives on issues that our clients are facing and disseminating that content for their benefit. And also just being very active in the life sciences community. For example, a very close partnership with Life Sciences Ontario.
1: Great organization.
0: We're doing a number of things uh, with them to help build the community, to help advance equity within the life sciences, and to advance a policy environment that can make us all thrive. That engagement is so important, both in terms of understanding and really hearing what organizations are experiencing within the ecosystem and understanding what the problems are that we can collectively solve, but also just in terms of building a reputation as an organization that is involved and engaged and that cares.
1: And you have built that reputation very effectively. So you joined in 2004. You became president 11 years later in 2015. Was that serendipity or was at some
0: point you're thinking, wait a minute, um, I'm on a path here? It wasn't the expectation. Certainly, When I started as an intern, I didn't think that I would become the president. I'll join your company as an intern if you make me CEO in 10 years. We have a joke in our office that anyone who enters our organization as an intern is on the presidential path. (laughs) I think it wasn't a goal. The goal was to do really interesting work and to grow and develop professionally and to ensure that I was always being challenged and always learning new things. And I was very fortunate to be in an organization that allowed that. So I just kept growing with the organization. I also built a very close and have a very close relationship with the founder of the company, Boris Tchepersky. You know, as his interests diversified in terms of his professional and investment interests, I was fortunate to have the relationship and the trust to step into that role in a small organization as it was and very entrepreneurial and scrappy. And there's an opportunity professionally to step in and fill gaps. So to recognize, oh, well, we're not doing this thing. I think I can do it or let me try. And so it creates opportunities for professional augmentation that you otherwise would not have in a more structured organization where your role is defined. And if you want to move to something else, it's a process of promotion or transition. In a small organization, you just have to roll up your sleeves.
1: That's more great advice. Thank you. Shift Health is 33 people now-ish?
0: Yes. Where's the company going to be in five years? Larger, (laughs) I would hope and expect. Maybe the best way to answer it is not so much to talk about revenue size. I think it's more thinking about where we want to have an impact, either through our client work directly or through our community engagement. And there are a few areas where we really want to push things. One is really helping to advance inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility within the life sciences. We're involved in a number of initiatives, including in partnership with Life Sciences Ontario, with Admare Bioinnovations, Pfizer, and others, to do just that. It's something to which we are profoundly dedicated. Certainly, my own lived experience has awakened me to the absolute imperative of creating welcoming environments where everyone feels a sense of belonging and can be themselves. That's one area of continued growth and development and learning. I mean, we have so much to learn. We're not the experts in idea, as we call it. I think we have the ability to know that what we don't know or to recognize that we don't know everything, but that's not an excuse not to act. We need to be very, very active and engage communities to advance idea. I would say it's not simply in social and ethical imperative. It is an absolute imperative for the success of our life science ecosystem because you know, we are in a science-driven, innovation-driven ecosystem. We will not succeed if we're not as innovative as possible. And we will not be as innovative as possible if we are not engaging the fullness of humanity and fullness of human experience, ideas, creativity, challenge in that process. So it's a business imperative as much as it is the social and a social. Great point. Just out of curiosity, what's the most exciting
1: thing for you about what is going on at your organization at the moment?
0: Well, certainly the work that we're doing in IDEA is exciting and energizing, and it, and it really, I think, enhances the sense of purpose that we have as an organization as we look to advance the interests of our ecosystem. I would say it's very exciting for me to see the extent to which our team is really committed to our mission as an organization including idea and really helping to push me as a leader to do even more for our ecosystem and to do and be better and and to have that kind of conversation with my team and for the team to feel very comfortable in challenging its leaders and raising questions is very exciting and just thrilled that the team continues to grow with us Another thing, and this was another point I wanted to make with respect to where we'll be in five years. I mentioned a moment ago that our view as an organization, the strategy work that we do benefits from the fact that we work across the ecosystem. We have a very integrated of all sectors. And I don't think we do a very good job, though, as an ecosystem of working together. That is an agenda that I think we really want to continue pushing, both through our direct client work and also in the context of the work we do with Research Canada, Life Sciences Ontario, and and other organizations that are committed to bringing the ecosystem together. I think we learned during the pandemic of the enormous power of trans-sector partnership in terms of being able to develop, test, regulate, and disseminate vaccines for example, in record time. And that was not possible without very, very close and trusting collaboration between and across sectors. I see us backsliding and going back into our side. Really? Okay. I'm seeing some of that. There are some approaches to collaboration and partnerships that hopefully will endure, but organizations... Are inertial, and when there isn't sort of an existential threat that forces you together, you sort of go back into your silos. That's something that I'm very concerned about because as we look to the future of the kinds of health innovations that are going to transform the experience of patients and people and how our health systems are designed, we're not going to be able to adopt and deploy those innovations equitably and accessibly without through partnership. If we think about things like cell and gene and living therapies, or we think about decentralized care through the use of digital tools or point of care diagnostics to really improve access to communities. If we're thinking about how we use data and real world evidence to make decisions about what's working and what's not, and not simply relying on the extraction of a randomized placebo controlled trial. All of this is very disruptive in very exciting ways, but we're not going to be able to realize the benefits of these innovations and possibilities if we do not work together. It really requires everyone to bring their ideas and to change. Thank you for making that point.
1: I don't know that I will agree that we are sliding back. I hope you're wrong. I Michael, I am. And part of the mission of this podcast is to help bring people together. I absolutely appreciate you making the point, And I will freely admit that a big part of me fears you're right.
0: I'm a very optimistic person. I do not allow myself to become distracted by pessimism. I am confident that we will push forward and move forward as a community, as an ecosystem and do better. I feel it needs action, it needs a push. And as a professional and as an organization, we want to be part of that.
1: We need your grandmother sitting in the back going, smarten up. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'm Jim Wilson, and you're listening to the NGB Ideas Podcast. Before we get back to the show, we'd like to remind our listeners to click the follow button so you don't miss any future episodes. I read that a big part of your job is engaging with the life sciences community. And obviously, from what you've said, that is absolutely the case. And it's to support the ecosystem. I would like to do a, a bit of a deeper dive here. You're policy advisor to and past chair of Research Canada. You're co-chair of the Life Sciences Ontario Annual Policy Forum. You're a director on the boards of Amherst Health Africa, the Canadian International Health Education Association, the Can Health, and Can Health International. I think it is safe to say that you're doing more than your fair share. We need more Ryans in this sector. I think what you're doing is great. I'd like to talk a bit more about your volunteer work. You've been very involved with an organization called Visions of Science,
0: and I'd appreciate you telling us about that organization. They're an amazing organization. In essence, they work with marginalized communities in the greater Toronto area, particularly racialized and black communities at very early stages of development through to university to encourage and create opportunities to getting engaged in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Because for so many of those populations, the opportunity to be engaged in STEM isn't there. They're looking to the life sciences community, for example. They're not seeing necessarily the people who look like them in leadership positions From the outset, many students are self-selecting out of STEM at a very early age because they don't feel they belong, and they're not receiving the mentorship and support and opportunities to really activate that potential and and that possibility. And so that's what Visions of Science does. They have fantastic programming, and we've been able to partner with them in, in a couple of capacities. One, we've created an internship program for high school students within our firm. It happens over the summer. It's one day a week for four weeks because many of these students, of course, have to work over the summer. They have an opportunity to basically do a bit of a consulting project with us. They learn about the consulting process, but more importantly, they have an opportunity to work with our team. We learn so much from their experience and their participation, They learn from our team in terms of, you know, how do you think through a consulting problem? What is the process do you develop around that? How do you engage with clients? In some cases, they'll sit in with client meetings with us. And at the end, they present to our team. I can tell you that our team loves doing this. It's one of the the highlights of the year. And the other thing that we've been doing more recently with Visions of Science is we've helped to advise them and support the development of what is called the Life Sciences Pathways Initiative, because there is a real desire to engage the life sciences community more fully in the work of Visions of Science. This is my plug. So listeners out there, if you are a life sciences organization that would like to get involved in supporting Black, racialized, and marginalized youth in becoming exposed to the life sciences sector and the opportunities within that sector, either through mentorship or through an internship program like the one that we've done, or through any other possibilities, then please reach out to myself or to divisions of Science.
1: I'd appreciate knowing who the person is who's had the greatest impact in your professional career. Who comes to mind?
0: There are so many. Certainly, my PhD supervisor, Manel Jordana, has had a profound impact on me personally and professionally, and I'm so grateful for his mentorship and leadership and care. Certainly, Boris Tversky, the founder of our company, has trusted me and created opportunities that have allowed me to be where I am today. I find that question so hard to answer because I have benefited from so much mentorship and care throughout my life and my career. It's very hard to answer that question. I, I, I've i missed people, and I, now I feel guilty. Um, so thanks, Tim.
1: <laughs> well, I, I apologize for putting you on the spot, and I hope that's the most difficult thing of this interview. In 2022, your firm was retained by Toronto Global to write a report on the need for wet lab space in the Toronto region, and the white paper was titled, At the Tipping Point. And I was one of the people interviewed and quoted in the document, which came up with five key takeaways. First, Toronto doesn't have enough capacity to meet demand. Secondly, increased funding is increased demand for the space we require. Lack of capacity is causing businesses to leave the GTA. De-risking development costs is critical to building capacity. And finally, solving this problem will only be accomplished through a coordinated team approach. This report got a lot of well-deserved press, and as president of the company that wrote it, I wonder if there's anything you can share that struck you
0: about the conclusions of that report and the industry reaction to it. And in fact, I did not write the report. It was members of my team. You know, I think it is a very good example of if we mobilize as a community, as an ecosystem, and work in partnership, uh, we can address a critical challenge for everyone's success and ability to thrive as a life sciences community. So here's a good example of the kind of partnership message and agenda that I noted earlier. This really does require a very integrated approach to thinking about investment, about policy, and about the diverse needs of individual or sectors within the ecosystem. I'm optimistic that it's going to stimulate the report and more importantly, the activity that has followed the report is going to sort of stimulate the the kind of action that will be needed to address this gap. You know, I think it's also, it highlights another point where there's a little bit of inconsistency in the ecosystem or almost um, a perversion within the ecosystem in the sense that on the one hand, we find that we have insufficient wet lab space in order to support our companies and our academic institutions given the funding environment. But at the same time, The funding environment in this country for life science research is deteriorating. There have been some investments in targeted ways, but if we look at overall investment in science and we compare that to the US or many of our other G7 peers, we are falling behind. On the one hand, we need to tackle the wet lab problem because we want our companies to have space to grow. But on the other hand, we can't do that, or we shouldn't be doing that unless we're also tackling the funding problem so that we have the pipeline of discoveries and innovations that will further support the need for that space. That's the perspective I would offer. That's my advocacy agenda to provincial and federal funders, that we we need to spend more on science.
1: I agree with everything that you've said. From my perspective, I keep hearing people saying, well, we need government support. And I'm thinking, well, the government's not going to support a private sector endeavor. We do have the five centers of excellence nationally now, and the ingredients to building a strong life sciences hub includes having research hospital, a university with a, a medical faculty and a strong engineering faculty, strong health sciences faculty. And that does not exist in every place across Canada that has a university. We've got five places in Ontario where that elixir is there. And in my ideal world, it would be great to see provincial and federal government money given to universities to create a wet lab startup hub on a campus right beside a research hospital and let the companies that need the space in their formative years get in that door and build, create inertia so the private sector can ride those coattails. And they will. I agree. You and others have said we need to make the public a partner in science and innovation and would appreciate you adding some more narrative on that if you could.
0: And here's another good example of where the pandemic was in some ways a missed opportunity to engage the public in science. And I'm not talking simply about how we communicate scientific literacy, I mean, making people feel that they're truly part of the system of knowledge creation. Getting the buy-in. Yeah, exactly. The beginning of the pandemic, people were really paying attention. People were talking about RNA in ways that I've never heard discussed in public. We saw what happened over time in terms of fatigue with the pandemic, messaging that became perceived as inconsistent and sort of an erosion at least within some segments of the population, of trust in what was being said. That erosion of trust sort of goes beyond science. It's a, a lack of trust in the broader institutions of society, but science is one of them. Even if we understand or believe that that portion of the population is small relative to the population that really does engage with our belief in science, we cannot ignore individuals who are increasingly becoming inaccessible because they're in an echo chamber of, of misinformation and getting it through can be very, very challenging. As a science community, we have a huge responsibility to ensure that the public as a whole understands the institutions of science, the limitations of science, and feels that sense of shared ownership because science is a human creation. It's a human institution, and we all have a stake in it. We have a lot of work to do to rebuild that trust and that engagement in our institutions.
1: Now, I have one question left. Before I ask that question, I want to thank you for your advocacy and your leadership. You won a volunteer award at LSO's Gala Dinner last year. I saw the people in the audience saying, you know what? Yeah, good choice. What is the next great big idea on your horizon?
0: I would return to a couple of scenes that I've pointed out. One is the determination to embed idea into the life sciences ecosystem and to make it not simply something that is nice to have, but recognize that it is a must have and that it needs to be a core competency of leadership because our license to lead cannot be sustained without that focus. The second is the continued determination to support our ecosystem in working together in partnership and making decisions that make sense for all stakeholders recognizing that our individual success hinges on our collective success. And the third is, and I don't have answers to this, I just recognize that we need to do it, is to ensure that we are creating a scientific apparatus and institution that is accessible to people, in which people feel a sense of ownership, trust, and engagement. Those are the three big ideas for me that are animating me and propelling me forward.
1: Well said. Ryan Wiley, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure
0: speaking with you today. A real pleasure, Jim. I really enjoyed this.
1: That was Ryan Wiley, president of Shift Health in Toronto, Ontario. To find out more about Ryan and his team, please go to shifthealth.com, and you can follow them on social at Shift Health. If you'd like to follow us on social, we are at LabOccupier. This week's episode was researched and edited by Tisha Prasad. If you'd like to contact me, my address is jwilson at Leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D dot We hope you like what we're doing and we'll appreciate you telling your friends and promoting us on social with the hashtags NGBideas and NGBI. Thanks again for listening.